tangible of time. Um, and I should look to do that along with the fruits of the Spirit um, all of the time, not just at Christmas. Now, I focused on that because of the verse in Matthew 19 where Jesus tells the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And what I love about that passage is how, it, how Jesus focuses on what the young man in that instance, but what we are to do. And James focuses quite clearly on this as well. When he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the idea that we need to do something isn't mine. It's quite clearly expressed in Scripture. We need faith and works. We need to repent of our sins. We need to believe in Christ, pick up our cross and follow Christ daily. We need to give of ourselves. However, this is Christmas time. Yeah. It is. And what happens to me when yeah. Christmas season rolls around is that I get a little bit cynical. And I can hear you all thinking, you <laughs> cynical? Not at all. I figured I'd either get laughter or the sounds of crickets with that. Laughter works. <laughs> um, the fact I'm cynical about something probably doesn't surprise anybody at all. Two things. Firstly, the attempt to remove God from Christmas. We want nothing to do with God or Jesus or church or religion, but if you don't mind, I will take your public holiday. And secondly, the attempt to counteract that with the over-religiosity of Bible-bashing everybody until they are quite aware that Jesus is the reason for the season. See, I think both of them miss the point. And I do understand where the Bible bashing comes from. But I think that we as Christians have a very important role in the representation of our faith, particularly at this time of the year. So I found myself reading an opinion article, which is something that I tend not to do very often because I'm quite sick of reading opinion pieces by self-righteous cultural Marxists who tell me that my opinion is wrong. I'm very sick of reading that. On news.com.au, which is hardly a known bastion of journalistic proficiency, by Joe Hildebrand, someone I quite freely admit I don't know much about. So, he commenced with a joke. How do you know if somebody is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. He goes on to clarify that the point made so eloquently at a vegan's expense is that we live in an age where people are more focused on telling you what they are 
rather than being what they are. Now, that comment interested me. Hildebrand examined two recently released films. He looked at the latest in the Terminator franchise and he looked at the reboot of Charlie's Angels. And both of those films had vast resources poured into their creation and their promotion, yet commercially performed very badly. And I will preface this with saying I have seen neither. So if you have and think that they need to take their place in cinematic history of some of the best things ever created, that's fine. I haven't seen them, okay? I'm merely sort of paraphrasing what was written here. Regarding the Terminator film, actress Linda Hamilton stated that three female leads were cast, quote, to service a story about three women that would feel true to every generation of women watching them on screen. And Charlie's Angel actress, Christian Stewart, stated, again I quote, I feel like we present a pretty diverse array of human beings in the movie. We were all able to bring a really truthful presence. Now quoting from the Hildebrand article, earnestly prattling on about truth and diversity is nauseating at the best of times, but trying to claim you're doing a service to truth in a sci-fi fantasy about homicidal robots is a level of pretension only Hollywood could muster. There is also something especially boring and mindless about the notion that just because a movie has a powerful female in it, that it must therefore be about female empowerment. Or that because it has a diverse cast, that it is about embracing diversity. It is the equivalent of a comedian talking about jokes instead of telling them. And Hildebrand went on to contrast those two commercially unsuccessful films to two of the most successful films in cinematic history. And they both happened to fall within the Marvel franchise, that is Black Panther and Captain Marvel. And Black Panther is the highest earning solo superhero film within that franchise, also one of the highest earning of all time. And Captain Marvel earned more revenue than the first two Captain America films, the first and second Iron Man films, all three Thor films, and both of the latest Spider-Man. And the success of these films was not due to them making some sort of social statement. They were successful because they had great writers, great directors, great actors, and albeit within a completely ridiculous fantasy world, great storylines. Again, I quote Hildebrand. Indeed, this was demonstrated perfectly in the latest Spider-Man, in which Peter Parker is virtually the only Anglo kid in his class. When I asked a couple of the cast members if this was a deliberate attempt at diversity by the filmmakers, they laughed. No. They said, this is just what a New York high school looks like. Telling an audience 
How they should feel about a piece of art is the laziest form of artistry there is, just as telling people what you are is a poor substitute for being it. So what is the point of all of this reading and quoting of cinematic creation? Well, this is Christmas. And I find myself being told what to do and who to be by two groups of people. Firstly, those who wish to tell me that historically this is actually a pagan celebration. Jesus wasn't real anyway, so stop with the religious mumbo-jumbo. And secondly, those who would beat me, me, around the head with a Bible until I walked down every street and into every shop tearing down every sign about somebody in a big red suit, proclaiming at the top of my lungs, Jesus is the reason for the season. Anybody heard of Father Bob Maguire, Catholic priest from Melbourne? Yeah. Quote, yeah. It's why the least we can do at Christmas is to make a stranger smile. And it's still the best gift you can give anyone. So going to Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Yeah. Joy. What an emotion. And joy, what a concept. What a concept. Jesus, our Saviour, is born. And we can have joy. We'll just hold on to that thought for a moment. Because if I go back to Chronicles, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Yeah. Yeah. Nehemiah. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Still in Nehemiah. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And Psalm 4, you have put more what in my heart? More joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Well, how about that? The idea of joy is not exclusively a New Testament emotion. See, Habakkuk has the idea. 
This author has the real idea of who God is, just as we do today. We know that God is so infinitely big, but so intimately small. With us, to come to earth as the most vulnerable of all, a baby. This is our God. O Lord, I have heard the reports of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He stood and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or was your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? On your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place, the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, and rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Great, fantastic, big, powerful, sovereign, almighty God. Listen, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take what? Joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In the worst 
I will rejoice. In the worst, I will have joy. What this does is remove all false doctrines from the equation. One aspect of what prosperity gospel teaches us is that we never experience sadness or grief, etc. But that's not true. Listen to John, sorry, listen to Jesus in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Not you might. Not there's a possibility that it might happen. You will. It is a certainty that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. Not the world might rejoice. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Not might. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now... I'll just point out that those of you who have given birth, I'm not the one saying that you don't remember the pain of childbirth. That's Jesus saying that. So don't throw things at me. Take written, written there. Take it up with him. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. Specifically, verse 33. I have said these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation, this translation. You will have. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul in 2 Corinthians wanted his audience to be completely and wholly aware of his suffering. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. The affliction. Not the mild inconvenience. The affliction. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself we were that afflicted we wished we could die indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death that does not paint an uplifting picture of what he was experiencing but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Remember that this is the same person who in Romans wrote, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Unceasing as in never ending. There is no end to the, not sadness, not sorrow, but anguish. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I have never 
ending. There is no end to the turmoil that I am feeling in my heart. Yet a few books later in Philippians says, Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And he repeats it. Again, I will say, Rejoice. In the worst, I will rejoice. In the worst, I will have joy. At Christmas time, I won't bash people over the head with a Bible. Rather, I will be joyful. That is why the least we can do at Christmas is to make a stranger smile. And it's still the best gift you can give anyone. What shop are we going into? Smile at the person who serves you. That might be the only smile they receive. In John 4, Jesus conversing with the Samaritan woman at the well. What's the last thing he says to her? Let's find out, shall we? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here, is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The last thing he says to her is, I who speak to you am he. That wasn't his opening line. That was his closing statement. Some homework for you. Not that I'll be checking, but some homework for you. Read the Gospels and find if Jesus ever started a conversation with someone saying, I am the Messiah. Worship me in spirit and truth. If I focus on merely telling people what I am, Jesus is the reason for the season, am I really being Christ-like? After all, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk, I'm not running, I'm not sprinting, I'm not jogging, I'm walking. So slowly through the valley, the bottom, of the shadow 
no light, of what? Death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I must embody a spirit of generosity, tangible and intangible, and a spirit of joy. After all, when their fig tree didn't blossom, there was no fruit on their vines. Their olives produced nothing and their fields were bare. They had no flock or herd. When they wept, when they lamented and they had tribulation, when they had great sorrow and unceasing anguish, when they were burdened beyond their strength and despaired of life itself, and when they walked through the valley of the shadow of death, they rejoiced. They had joy. Now replace the words they and their with I or my. When my fig tree doesn't blossom, when there is no fruit on my vines, my olives produce nothing, my fields are bare, I have no flock or herd, when I weep, when I lament, when I have tribulation, when I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, when I am burdened beyond my own strength, when I despair of life itself, and when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will rejoice. I will have what? Joy. The band could, band could come back up, please. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder or author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot, not won't, can't, it cannot be shaken. And let us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The reason for Christmas on its own is worth celebrating and being joyful for. Jesus came for us. But we don't 
joyful just at Christmas time. We need to be joyful all of the time. Rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Again I say, rejoice. Rejoice.